Microphone guy, amplify thyself. Indeed. That's good. For those of you listening at home, a delightful banter is taking place in a repartee between congregants while Simeon looks up a passage in his Bible. Okay, I can't really find the verse at the moment, but in Malachi it talks about the Levites and how they're not doing things. And I thought that was an interesting Okay. They're giving in Malachi to, they're giving blemished animals. They're right. robbing literally they're accused of robbing God. And so that was like the contrast on the other side. Oh, oh, oh Levi doesn't stay to being faithful. No make no mistake. I mean, as early as the uh, coming out of Judges, you've got um, you've got Eli's sons Hophni and Phineas, who are taking of the meat portion that belongs to the God that belongs to God, extorting the people, um, lying with the women and their basic bums, and God determines to put them to death. I mean, so the priesthood gets corrupted quickly. What I'm just trying to highlight is what God and the type of loyalty God required of those priests and. This is this, this, this isn't some new standard. Jesus, when he comes along and says, hating your mother, father, division of the family, is not necessarily bringing in some new standard. If anything, it's not as severe as what Levi had to do. So that, that was my point in bringing that up. But uh, am I cutting off your point or go? That's fine. Oh, okay. um, we are also priests in a sense. Bingo. So... Well, not even in a sense. We're priests. So we have to do that? In a sense, well, well let to, me uh, go to, to an this. extent, not physically, obviously. Yes, I at least I hope. Yes, I'm very. No, as, as I read that passage in, in um, Deuteronomy, I am so grateful when Jesus told Peter to put his sword down. My kingdom's not of this world, and and that took place. But no, we're priests. Go to go to. I have actually the uh, reference is in the notes. I cut it out of the sermon because I didn't have time. But if you look, uh, go to um, Revelation one. And you can also go back, Reformation Sunday, I did a message on the priesthood of the believer and how um, by that basis we don't need a church magisterium to tell us what the Bible means. That was a big conflict in the time of the Reformation was the Roman Catholic Church saying to Luther, you're just a, you know, a drunk little monk. Who on earth gave you insight? Who gave you the authority to read and understand the Bible? We've told you what it means. And Luther's answer is the priesthood of believers. As priests, we can handle God's word by virtue of being anointed with God's spirit. We can read and understand scripture. Well, one of the passages that, that comes out of is in Revelation chapter 1. Um, so pick it up in verse 5, oh, 4. This is the greeting. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And if you go to First Peter, um, First Peter chapter 2, I think. It's either 1 or 2, but I'm guessing it's 2. Let me turn there. First Peter chapter 2. Yeah, here we go. Um, <clears throat> verse 4, 
as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, precious and chosen, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse um, 9. That you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And that stems out of Exodus 19. Let's go back there, follow the thread. Um, what Peter is doing is announcing uh, Exodus 19 upon the church. Um, in Exodus 19, Moses and Israel have just arrived at Sinai. And Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments are given. But before the Ten Commandments are given, God gives a purpose statement for why he called Israel to the mountain. And in verse 4, we'll pick it up. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. That's exactly what Peter just said. And so what he's saying is by virtue of hearing with faith. Notice, I love this, notice how there's no mention of law here. It's you will hear, if you will therefore indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. We're going to hear his voice, we're going to keep his covenant. By virtue of that, they're to enter into a new relationship with God where all of them, not just, well, actually, Levi hasn't become a, a kingdom, a, a priest yet. They're, that's later, actually. Um, but all of God's people would be this. And... So he lays this out before the law ever comes. And what it's based upon, if you jump down to verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. It's hearing with faith. It's hearing God's commands, believing, and acting upon them. That's, that's the nature. So what we see is the continuity that, that it's always been. God speaks to his people. His people hear and they believe and that faith is evidenced through obedience. And here he tells them, if you will do that, you will be this to me. And Peter says, because we are hearing with faith and we are obeying, evidencing that faith, we also have become a holy nation, a priesthood of believers. So uh, that's that's the nature, the basis of the priesthood of believers. So is there more than just having the title of being a priest for Christ? What is that important? look like applied to our lives? <laughs> Great question. Okay. Um, if you think of the two major offices, two of the major offices in the Old Testament are prophet and priest. And in a grossly oversimplified way, the way to think about it is this. Both priest and prophet stand as intermediaries between God and man. The prophet speaks facing the people on behalf of God. So the prophet, Moses goes up in the mountain, talks to God, comes down the mountain, Hey, this is what God says. So he's talking to the people on behalf of God. He's the intermediary for God to the people. The priest is kind of the reverse. The priest represents the people. He intercedes on behalf of the people. So Moses is, is in some respects, both, because he'll intercede for Israel and he'll plead out their case. But the priests offer up the sacrifices for the people. The priests instruct the people in the word. 
and teach the people. The Levites teach the people what the word and the law mean. So in Ezra, when he teaches the people, um, yeah, go to Ezra 7. Um, let me see that. Um, Ezra, Nehemiah, Nehemiah Esther. Job. Okay, hold on. I'm still, I'm still okay. feeling my way around this Bible. It's Ezra 7, then. Um, where you get one of the first pulpits in the Bible. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Actually, is it Ezra 7? Ezra 7 is where you determined. Where, is it, where he actually reads the people. Hold on. i got underlined in here somewhere. People Give the people a sense of the meaning. Uh, maybe 6 before it? Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. This is not good. Zeb, just look up uh, the sense, sense meaning in either Ezra or Nehemiah. No, 10 is where Ezra himself set to do these things. But then it actually happens, and he reads the law, and they set up a platform, a raised platform, and the Levite. What I'm looking for is what the Levites do in that context. And, and uh, yeah, because 710, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, to teach statutes in Israel. I'm looking for where he actually does do that. Hold on. Oh. Is it 10? What? Nehemiah 8. Ah, Nehemiah 8. Sorry. See, that's the problem. It's overlap. These two books cover the same stuff. It's Nehemiah 8. Okay, there we go. Thank you, Zeb. Okay. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded him, Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. By the way, notice children are not excluded. Now, really young children might be, but the, the, the litmus test for gathering is simply, can, can you understand what you're hearing? Then come. Um, there wasn't a youth group here. Not that youth group is necessarily a bad thing, but the point is all the people um, who, can, who in any way can understand what's being taught are, are welcome to come. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square, before the water gate, from early morning until midday. Now, now that's why you guys ought not to complain about me having long sermons. Um, early morning, he just, just read it. The exposition comes later. Our reading for this morning, and then four hours later, he's done. Um, he read from it in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform they had made for the purpose. And then we go through a list of the Levites. And here's your, getting back to your question, Simeon, what do Levites, what priests do? Beside him stood um, Mataniah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseiah on his right hand, and Pediah, and Mishael, and Malichjah, and Hashum, and Hashbarana, and Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. The key with these names, just, just go with it and sound confident. If you can throw guttural in, it sounds really convincing. Um, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. You ever wonder why when Pastor Daniel reads the Bible when he preaches, he asks everyone to stand? It's a pattern. It's not a law, but it's a pattern he gets from Scripture. Um, so it's, it's a good, it's a good thing to do. Um, 
And, uh, um, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground, and also Yeshuan and Bani and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akub and Shabbathai and Hodiah, Maaseah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, there's a name, Josabad, sorry, Hanan and Peliah the Levites. The Levites helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. So there's another function of priests. We know the priests offer up the sacrifices there. They are instrumental in mediating sin for God. In other, they're not the mediator, but they're the ones offering the sacrifices. And they're teaching the people what the word of God means. So, um, as a father and as a husband, I'm praying for my family. That's priestly. I'm teaching my, my, my I'm leading in the Bible in the home. That's priestly. Um, Job would pray for the Lord forgive the sins of his children. I mean, that's, that's all priestly function. And to the degree that we're a witness to the world, bringing the message of the gospel, we're functioning in a priestly capacity. Because really the whole nation of a priestly nation was that Israel is supposed to be one big evangelistic nation so that the world would marvel at this great people, this great law, and this great um, wisdom. And, and we get that for a little bit. So the Queen of Sheba shows up, and whoa, I didn't even hear the half of it. Uh, that's what's supposed to be happening. So Israel, God chose Israel not just to bless Israel and, and mess with everybody else, and everyone else can just be left alone. He tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. That's what Israel is supposed to do. They're supposed to do that, and to very little end, they didn't do that very much. Um, so th- those, I mean, if anyone wants to add to priestly function, but I'd, I'd submit those are probably the, the primary things I can think of. Anyone want to add other characteristics of priests, what it means to be a priest? Sacrificial system, instruction of the law, and intercession, and evangelism, you know, bringing part of it, teaching God's word to be proclaiming or announcing it to those who don't believe. Those would be my thoughts of the uh, primary functions of a priest. Okay. Zeb. Just a thought on the intercession aspect. Um, I've heard it said that the, I think Sproul, R.C. Sproul mentioned this, that the, the priests and the prophets both stand between God and man. The prophets stand with their back to God and talking towards man mm-hmm. and the priests stand with their backs to man basically asking for forgiveness asking yeah. Yeah. confession confessing sin repenting nationally on a day-to-day basis yeah, yeah in, in my mind's eye that's the picture the prophet is standing facing men and the, the priest is standing facing god even though that's not all he does as we see teaching the people what the law means um, but yeah, the primary work the priests are caught up in is going before God's presence, offering up sacrifices. I mean, can you imagine how long it would take when every family in Israel needs a, a Passover lamb? And you can't sacrifice it in your local synagogue. It has to be sacrificed in the temple. I mean, that place would look like a butcher's shop. I mean, absolutely just dawn till dusk killing of lambs. Um, and that's what they were doing. 
and they'd take turns going up to the temple, and they'd, they'd lead in the synagogues, but they'd have to go take shifts up at the temple. So Zechariah, the shift in the temple, that was how the, the book of Luke starts. And so it was uh, the vast majority of what they did was dealing with the temple sacrificial system. And so they gave their lives, as it were, to making intercession and offering up sacrifices on behalf of the people. That was the overwhelming majority of what they'd be doing as, as a priesthood. Um, and so in our case, because the sacrifice has already been made, we don't repeat the sacrifice, but we can present the sacrifice to others, right? We can invite them to, to, to partake and to share in the blessings of that sacrifice. So we're, we're not um, re-sacrificing anything. That, that's part of the objection we have with the Catholic Mass, where they want to re-crucify Christ. We're not. They're understanding the priest is the priest really is performing a sacrifice. It's bloodless, but according to their most recent catechism, efficacious in satisfying God's wrath for sin. That's their terms, man. Um, it's it's a real, bloodless, efficacious sacrifice. And we don't do that, but we do, as a priest, go to the world offering the sacrifice to others that they can share in the blessings of it. So, um, yeah. Kevin. Uh, this kind of goes along with, well, the, the message... This morning, and you um, referred to Exodus 32, um, and I, I kept reading in verse 30, and so I'm, I was wondering if you could kind of explain after the sons of Levi basically um, destroyed 2,000 people, <laughs> is what it looked like to me. Um, Moses went and asked for atonement for their sins. Yeah. Can you explain what? what's going on there exactly so i want to make sure i understand it it looks like you know he's asking god to uh if if he won't forgive them to blot his name out of the book yeah and then god says well uh, i will blot out who who is who is not mine what does he mean by that Good and easy one. Okay. Uh, no, great. No, great question, Kevin. Let me. Can I start a little earlier in Moses' priestly intercessory work? It starts earlier in um, chapter thirty-one, when God makes it clear to so Moses is up on the mountain. He's gone thirty days, and the people say, "Hey, Aaron. Hey, make for us gods." As this man Moses, we don't know what's become of him. So Moses is up on the mountain, and God lets him know, "Yeah, Moses, I'm about to destroy the people." So, um, verse 32, chapter 32, verse 1, sorry. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As to this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings, the gold, what is in your ears, your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So the people took off the rings and the gold that were in their ears. They brought them to Aaron, and he received their gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graven tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, um, so the people said, These are your gods. And Aaron, sort of compromising, tries to make a middle ground. And he, look at verse 5. Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow should be a feast to the Lord, and that's all caps, to Yahweh. So the people, like, these are your gods. Aaron's like, no, no. What Aaron believes he's done, what Aaron's trying to do, is no, we're still going to worship Yahweh, but now we get a visual representation of Yahweh. Now we get to make a graven image of Yahweh. So Aaron is, is trying to sort of, instead of 
Moses is going to draw a much more line in the sand. Aaron's going to try to you know, work with this and say, well, no, these aren't the gods. This is the Lord, but you can worship the Lord by worshiping this golden calf. It's sort of syncretism. That's not the point. So verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, and this is subtle. Um, D.A. Carson pointed this out. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, it is stiff-necked. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. I'm going to kill them all, Moses, and start over with you. Now watch this. What did the Lord say to Moses, right? The Lord is always distancing himself from his people. He said in verse 7, your people whom you brought up. Now look what Moses does. Verse 11, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought up? Moses is reminding the Lord, even as God in his own speaking is trying to distance himself from them. These are your people. These are, you know, you do this with, with your wife or your kids. This is your son. This is your, <laughs> Serena, your boy just said to me, right? Um, is something like that going on? And Moses is having none of it and he's pushing back. No, God, these are your people and you led them out of the, out of the land and brought them up out of the land of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Moses is bringing out all the big guns of intercession. God, think about your name and your glory. Think of what the other peoples will think. Notice he's not saying, oh, these poor idolaters, they really didn't mean it, and it's not really as bad as you think it is, and they're really, really sorry. There's none of that. He brings out, God, your name and your fame, and you made promises to Abraham, and you made promises to Isaac. That, that's the argument that Moses brings to God. Um, remember... Verse 13, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I promise I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster he'd spoken of bringing on his people. So the first wave, Kevin, is I'm just going to kill them all. Moses intercedes. God relents. So then, but, there's, but now there is going to be discipline. So Moses goes down, and um, verse 20 he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. I've never seen the flannel graph of that bit taking place. Um, but these are key details. You want a golden calf, huh? Drink it. Imbibe it. Take it all in. Then, the second wave of discipline is um, the, the Levites randomly slaughtering. You've got to understand, everyone in the camp who worshiped the calf deserves death. This is mercy that God doesn't kill them all, but he's going to kill some. Some will be made an example of. Um, and the very nature of him saying, I don't care who it is, this isn't these people being angry and being vicious and cruel. I'm sure the Levites did not want to do this. I'm sure it was difficult and, and heartbreaking. This is God saying, okay, I won't kill everybody, but I'm going to make an example and kill some. I'm going to kill some. Then, um, verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. 
And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Now, Kevin, as to your question, so far there's been no sacrifice, there's no law. This people has no direct knowledge of how to deal with their sin before God. They know orally that Abraham would make altars and give sacrifices to God. We, we know that, but the oral tradition of what was passed down. Nothing's been written yet, and there's been no um, precepts, no legal code given. So Moses is saying, I know that somehow Abraham would get right with you, and I know that somehow our fathers got right. I'm going to go up and see if maybe somehow this wrath can be removed, because the word atonement is an English word that comes from at one that's the etymology of the word. At, to make two parties that are disunified one, to unify two. So he's saying, I'm going to find some way, basically, I can make God not be mad at you. Make some way to reconcile you with God. Okay? I'm going to go up and out. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So Moses is now identifying, this this is probably the ultimate act of priestly intercession. He's casting his lot with the people. As you do to the people, Lord, do to me. The Apostle Paul says something similar in Romans 9. I could almost wish myself accursed for their sake. Um, Where he says, basically, I I could almost wish myself damned to hell if my countrymen would but be saved. I think there's some sort of hyperbole there. I don't think it ever could happen. I don't think God ever accepts that offer. Okay, I'll damn you and forgive him. But it, it is simply a strong, strong, strongest language I can think of of Moses' identification with his people. No, because remember what God offered before is I'll kill them and start over with you. I'll, sp- I'll keep you, Moses, get rid of them. And he's saying, no, I'm, I'm with them. These are my people. And I'll, whatever you do to them, you do to me. So then the Lord pushes back and says, um, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Which is a, something that's more explicitly laid out in Ezekiel. The soul that sins shall die. The father isn't punished for the son's sins. The, sin isn't, the son yeah. isn't punished for the father's sins. Now what the Lord has relented from is the temporal discipline. He didn't, he didn't kill everybody. But as regards to sin being forgiven, that's on a case-by-case individual basis. Moses can't, based on his prayer, get God. I can't do anything to make God forgive your sin. Right? And that's, I think, what God is saying. I won't kill them all. I will relent of the physical, immediate discipline, but the soul that sins is going to die. You can't do anything about their sin um, before me. Uh, Behold, now, verse 34, now behold, go lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go with you. Nevertheless, in the day that I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf one that Aaron had made. So instead of killing everybody, the discipline is they had to drink the water of the gold. The Levites walked from end to end. And then, after Moses went up and interceded, God sends some sort of disease or some sort of um, plague on the people. That's what happens instead of everyone dying. Moses isn't done yet intercessing for the people. Verse chapter 33, the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here. I will send my angel, um, uh, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. Uh, verse 2, I will send an angel before you. It's kind of like when they left Egypt and there's a pillar of fire and the cloud. And Moses won't have any of that. Look at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. 
Yet you have said, I know you my name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you. In order um, to find favor in your sight, consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you. So what Moses is saying is, Lord, go up with us. Don't lead us with your angel. You go up with us. And in many respects, the, the priestly code, the way the law is divided up, what you get next is the priestly code, is in effect God saying, okay, Moses, if I'm going to go up with you and not consume you, then there's going to have to be some more rules. There's going to have to be some more <laughs> holiness, and the priests are going to have to offer some more sacrifices because I'm really, 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 really holy. And you don't want me in your midst and have me consume you. So you get the next chunk of law. If you read through the Pentateuch, the law, what's interesting is when the law code breaks up for narrative. And so here's a narrative breaking up. So from Exodus 20, we get the Ten Commandments all the way to the Golden Calf incident is legal code. And the legal code breaks the story of the Golden Calf. And then we get the priestly code. And I think in many respects what God's saying to Moses is, okay, if you want me to go up with you, there's going to need to be some more rules. There's going to need to be some more um, structure in place. Because I'm holy, and that's where you get this whole notion, you don't just approach God willy-nilly, however you please, but you, what's my friend say? My friend Chris, who's probably listening right now, says, you know, meeting with God is a black tie affair. <laughs> At least under the old covenant it was. You had to do the right rituals, the right washings, the right sacrifices. You didn't just sort of waltz up, going, what's up, God? I mean, Nadab and Abihu tried that, and they got burnt with fire. And so, anyway, that's a, does that help answer your question, or is that long and rambling? I just wanted to walk through that, Kevin, just because Moses at every step is interceding for the people and pleading on their behalf, and the Lord relents. And this is the first time in Scripture where we see that a righteous intercessor can be effective. Abraham tried with Sodom and Gomorrah, and even though God granted his request, Sodom and Gomorrah, you couldn't even find ten people, so they got destroyed. But here's the first time... God relents in the face of a righteous intercessor, which sets the groundwork for Christ interceding on our behalf before the throne of God right now. Okay. So this this is, I'm sure, a misunderstanding on my part no. or just not understanding at all quite how this works. But can, is this anything to do with um, what we understand as election versus... Uh, you know, being chosen or not, because he he brought the plague upon them. Yep. Uh, is there such a thing prior to the cross? Yes, yes. Moses speaks of a book, and if you go to Revelation twenty or twenty-one, twenty, I'm guessing twenty, it's there as well. Now it doesn't have to demand election because my Arminian friends would say, when you come to faith in Jesus, God writes your name in the book. Or God knows you're to come in faith in Jesus, and so you write your name in the book. But the scriptures, both there and throughout the Bible, indicate there's a book with the names of those who will have faith in God. How you get your name in that book is where the question of predestination election comes up. But yeah, there's a book. So if you go to uh, Revelation 20, I'm trying to be, I'm trying not to. Okay. Okay. Look, you were here a couple months ago. You know what I think? I, 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 okay. I don't want to get distracted, Zeb. Um, what? What's political? No, I'm just saying the fact that there's a book with names in it does not necessitate election. That in and of itself does not demand election. But the, the, the good works that were prepared beforehand? 
Oh, no, no, no. Oh, the rest of the stuff. Sure, I'm saying the book by itself. No, but if you think I'm kibbing out or copying out, you call me on it. I'm just saying the book by itself doesn't demand election. What the rest of the Bible says about the book does. So, Revelation 20, um, verse... Let's pick it up with 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who seated on it. This is, this is such an awesome description of God. <laughs> the one who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place is found for them. That's just so picturesque. Earth and sky are like, get me away, and they got nowhere to go. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and the death in Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Notice, you're not judged for not having your name written in the book of life. You're judged for what you did. But there's a one-to-one correlation between the people who have faith and the people whose name is written in the book of life. So it's not like, your name's not in the book, you go to hell. It's, here's the life you lived and the things you did, you're going to hell. So please don't, don't misread that. But absolutely, here's a book of life, and ultimately at the end of the day, if your name's not in the book of life, you're going to hell. Um, so yes, Kevin, that, that book. I don't know how Moses knew of that. Again, we don't know how much of the oral tradition um, made it. Obviously, some of it did, um, of the stories. They know, like they'd forgotten God's name, so at the burning bush, Moses doesn't know the name of God. Who shall I say sent me? Tell them Yahweh sent you. But they, they knew other things. They knew circumcision. Um, Moses' wife at least did. <laughs> because uh, Moses forgets to circumcise his son, and so she, the wife does and stops God from killing Moses. That's a weird passage. She says, you've made me a bridegroom of blood. So they knew about that. that that's evidence of some knowledge of the covenant God made with Abraham and the covenant of circumcision. But they didn't know God's covenant name. So it's not entirely clear how much orally had been passed um, through down, but they they uh, they had that much at least. Somehow he knew about this book of life. I don't know how he knew it. Is that hitting at what you're getting at, or is it more? You're good. Okay. Oh, Linda. Okay. So does that mean then that the Levites? or at least the priests anyway, were exempt from all the instructions in Leviticus where it says not to touch blood or drink blood. All the, I mean, I know they're not drinking it, but, you know, I mean, that's what they're doing every day is yes. dealing with blood. Some, I'm, I'm not, if someone knows how, I'd be interested if there's a text. On the one hand, to touch a dead body or even a dead animal is to make yourself unclean. The Levites did that constantly in the temple service. So apparently, they were not made unclean by touching a dead animal. Um, yeah. Yeah. In fact, where is it? Where is it? Um, when we did the thing on the... Hold on. When we did the thing on the thing, uh, the the altar sanctifies the sacrifice on it. So I, I would argue, probably if I had to guess why, that the the sacrificial system itself and the altar make holy the things that would otherwise make unclean. Um, is when we did the Jesus' contagious holiness and 
Where is it? It's in Exodus. I find it here. Numbers? It's in Numbers. Okay. The altar sanctifies. The altar sanctifies or makes holy the sacrifice. Hold on. Um... You got text in the book of life, huh? Hold on. Give me one second. I will find the uh the altar sanctifies. Give me one second. Six. I'm thinking it's Exodus if it's the altar, but I could be wrong. Um Okay, what's your text in the book of life? I'll look up the other one while we chat. Um I You do. Okay, so Your voice is loud, on, on the talk about the Book of Life not specifically having a position in regards to the issue of election, uh, Revelation 17 says, And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the Book of Life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not in his, uh, to come. So the fact there that the that those whose names had not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world would seem to have a pretty sure pretty and strong it, implication that Zeb I know no I know where you I know where you're Here's my from. point when Moses speaks of it is it clear he understands it as that no it doesn't in and of itself necessitate that Moses knows it's a book we don't know because Moses doesn't say how you get your name in that book that's all I'm saying. So Kevin's question, in other words, what I'm hearing Kevin ask is, is Moses right here bringing out the doctrine of election and predestination? I'm not sure he is at all. No, I'm not That's, saying that either. Now, what I we learn later about just, the book. Well, my, my point was yeah. just that the book, Yes. To, to, challenge, to challenge your assertion that there's that the notion of the book is neutral one way or the other on that regard. Let, I don't let, think it is. Let me, let me, let, let me say it again because I thought I'd, I'd, I'd clarified the notion of the book in and of itself, not what the Bible says about the book, but that there is a book, right. does not necessitate election predestination. That's all right. I'm saying. I, I, okay, I, I must have misunderstood you because I thought that what you were saying was that the, the texts on the book that are, were no. ambiguous. What the Bible says about it, different matter. Yes. The fact that there is a book could work both ways. Right, and my, I was just challenging okay. what you had mentioned okay. that, there was, yeah, yeah. that there was varying understanding. 29, well, yeah, Matt, Matt found it as well. All I'm getting at is, again, what I was hearing Kevin ask is, is Moses bringing this out in the argument at this point? Is Moses bringing out election and predestination in his intercession for Israel? I, I don't see anything that would demand that. That's all I'm saying. There's nothing that indicates he's aware of that yet. Because God's going to tell him, in fact, in the next chapter that. I have mercy in whom I have mercy, because it's going to culminate in Moses saying, show me your glory, and I'm the Lord God, and I have mercy in whom I mercy. And so I would suggest that until he hears that, that's news to him. So if anything, I'd be predisposed to think no at this point in Moses' knowledge of God. But Fair enough. I was just, okay. yeah, that's fine. Exodus 29. Okay, Exodus 29. Let's pick it up in 36. Every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. You shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to consecrate. So get get how important this is. You, you don't want to use any old altar. The altar itself needs purification and anointing first. But once the altar is purified and anointed, 
Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. So even this dead animal, which would normally contaminate you and make you unclean, by virtue of the altar becomes holy. The priest who touches the altar, who would otherwise have been unclean for touching a dead body, is holy. That would be my guess at how the priest stops from being defiled by touching all these dead bodies. That would be my guess. Thank you, both of you, both Matt and, and Al. Yes, Linda. So then how does that work with the people on a daily basis who are killing their food to eat it? That, um, I'd have to check. I believe the commandment, not the commandment against, the warning of touching dead bodies um, was a body that was dead. Like if you're walking, like when you see a deer on the side of the road, it's roadkill. I don't believe butchering necessarily, I, I have to look into this. My, my understanding of the Levitical law could could improve. Amazing, right? Um, but I think there's an understanding of difference between butchering an animal and the notion of the, the, the animal, the body. Because like, the example is Samson coming across, he's a Levite, his parents are Levites. He finds a dead carcass of a lion that's been dead so long, a beehive is growing in it. And he takes the honey from the dead body and never, and the text says he did not tell his parents. What's he just done? He's made them ceremonially unclean and they don't even know it. So I, I would have to look into, I could shoot off an email to Dr. Varner or somebody. Is the prohibition against touching a dead body, would that include butchering an animal? Or is that the notion of a body that's dead and therefore the thought of the disease that comes with it taking time? I don't know. Zeb? It just occurs to me that if the if there's not some sort of a limitation on that, then basically you're ceremonially ceremonially unclean anytime you eat meat. Right. Like there's there's got to be some sort of a, a, right. a point there where it I, ceases I, being. This is an interesting question, and as long as I don't forget, I will endeavor to look this up. No, I just don't make any promises after I after I preach. My brains are kind of just kind of like you now you feel after you vomit, sort of that sort of ah, that's how I feel after I preach. That doesn't sound like so good. There's a quote. There's a quote. Sorry, no, but there's a sort of there's a sort of catharsis. Anyway, my brains I don't trust my. If like if we set this is why I don't try to set dates to meet or try to make appointments after the service. I never remember. So my wife is here though, and she'll remind me. So I'll, I'll, I I actually am very interested in that. Jonah, microphone. Uh, what chapter are you on? Because since I just happened to be at Leviticus 17, are you there or not? No, we were in Exodus 29 was the last place we were at. Well, Leviticus 17 touches up on this topic. Okay. Leviticus 17. Let's check it out. Place of Sacrifice. Okay, verse, verse what? I was thinking of verse 2, but okay. First, let me see verse 10. Um, okay, let's, let's read some of all of this. Okay, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. Blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He shall he has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among the people. 
I got to go back and check this, but I, I'm getting the impression that when you slaughter an animal, you give a portion to the Lord every time. It seems to be what that's saying. And I'd say by virtue, and I assumption by virtue of doing that, you haven't become unclean when you finish butchering the animal. That'd be my guess. I, I am now very intrigued on this topic, and so I will, I will try to track it down. Or, no, better yet, I'm going to ask Daniel. Daniel? Let's try, no. Um, so, so yeah, whenever you kill an animal, you, you're giving a portion to the Lord. And I know in Leviticus uh, 3.16, uh, all the fat belongs to the Lord. The fat portion, the fat tail of the lamb, that's the Lord's. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that's the Lord's. He can't, they're all his anyway, so he, he wants his portion, so you give it to the Levites um, to offer up. So that might be the answer as well. The priest shall throw the, the three shall blow the blood on the altar. Um, uh, ooh. Ah, bingo. Yeah. Excellent. Look at this. Look at this. This is fantastic. Oh, okay. Verse. Okay. What I will repeat is that um, the chairman of our elders, Al Ostrander has just so um, helpfully pointed out that in verse 15 and 16 and 17, a clear distinction is made in Leviticus between that which you kill and that which, I'll read it, that which has died of its own causes or been killed by another animal. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes, bathe himself in water, and be unclean until evening, and then he shall be clean. Well, there's our answer. The, the Leviticus makes a huge difference between the animal you slaughter and butcher and the animal you come across that's dead. And the, pro, and the being unclean is only stated in connection to coming across something which is torn apart by other animals or died of its own, which would include Samson's dead lion, but not your cheeseburger. Well, they wouldn't have a cheeseburger because you don't mix Yeah. He came back later. Okay, yeah, okay. It, but it falls into the next. You come across. Okay, it's not... It, it's... You got to be careful. You might be unclean. Well, but if you hit it, yeah, okay, okay. Okay, Simeon, bring us home. I have a question on how then we should approach God as priests. What would that look like? Because I think we probably do it too casually. Yeah. Great question. Let's go to First Peter and be done much time for our morning. I mean, no, First Peter deals with this directly. Go to First Peter, um, chapter two. No, one. Chapter one. Maybe it is two. Hold on. Um, if you call on him as father, that's what I'm looking for. One seventeen. No, one? Okay, one. There it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Okay. Um, we'll pick it up in verse 14. Chapter 1 of 1 Peter. And we'll close with this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, 
conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Let me, let me sort of paraphrase that. We are the ones who say that we will never face God as the judge of hell. We've been adopted into his family. We get to call him Abba Father. We will never stand before that great white throne because Christ stood in our stead. There is a judgment for Christians, but it's a judgment of rewards. Um, we're never going to deal with God in that capacity because Christ has already been dealt with. So what he's saying is if you, if you have the um, audacity, the boldness, the importunity to call the one who will judge heaven and earth, cast angels and man into hell, if you have the, if you have the temerity to call that person father, you better understand what a serious, serious person your father is. Consequently, you need to conduct yourself with fear and trembling to the time of your exile. I, I picture something like, you know, some son whose dad is a Supreme Court justice. Or, you know, you think of someone like, you know, Attila the Hun and one of, one of his, um, generals pulling Attila the Hun's son aside and saying, your dad is a serious dude. And I know you get to call him dad, but your dad puts to death countries. You should take him seriously. Something like that is what Peter's saying. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. It was foreknown from the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Yeah, if if the whole notion is the priests have a better understanding of who God is, yeah, the priests should definitely take seriously who God is and not be flippant and light. And, and that's the balancing act, Psalm 2, rejoice with trembling. We get to call him daddy. We get that level of boldly approaching. And yet we can fall into two sides on that. One of over-familiarity. I mean, I was at, I was at one, um, one uh, Christian service somewhere where the guy started off his prayer. Hey, God. And I'm not saying that in and of itself was wicked, but that type of mentality is not going to be healthy. You're going to end up with Jesus is my homeboy type of stuff. Um, on the other hand, we can so emphasize the fear and so emphasize the seriousness that we can never actually draw near. <laughs> um, you know, and I think sort of Roman Catholicism takes that to an nth degree because... I mean, here's, MacArthur summarizes Roman Catholicism this way, and I think he's pretty accurate. In Roman Catholicism, God is pretty heavy. He's pretty serious. He's kind of scary. You really don't want to deal with God the Father directly. And Jesus, he's more approachable. But as we saw from texts like we had this morning, he's still kind of scary. But Mary, Mary's a sweetheart. And what boy can't resist his mother? Why do you think Mary gets so much attention? If I have to pick who I'm coming before... Let it be Mary, is their mentality. Because they so tremble and terrified at God that they'd much rather come to Mary. Um, so the balancing act is obedient children who can still call out to God, Father, I need help, and yet take him seriously. That's, that's the, the balancing act. That's the road we've got to walk. Anyway, we're over time, and God bless, and I'll, God willing, see you all next week.